This morning, we're finishing our series entitled Christian. And if you've been with us from the beginning of this series, you would have heard us say that Christians and Christianity in particular, we have a bit of a branding problem. You see, if you listen to the world and you listen to culture around us, you might hear them define or say about Christians something like this. Christians are homophobic, judgmental moralists who think they're the only ones that are going to heaven and secretly relish the fact that everyone else is going to hell. And as we said from the very beginning, that this is more of a terminology problem than it is anything else. See, because you call yourself a Christian. I call myself a Christian. I identify to other people that I'm a Christian. I want people to know that I'm a Christian. But I, in reality, have no idea what this word Christian truly means. Because you see, if we open up scriptures, we found out the word Christian only appears three times in all of scripture. And in each encounter that it's used, it's a derogatory word that was used by a group of people who were angry or frustrated at Jesus to describe his followers. It was a label, oh, you Christians. And because Christian and Christianity isn't defined, you can be a Christian and do just about anything or believe in just about anything that you want to believe in. And that's why we have Christians on both sides of every political issue, every social issue, every moral issue, Christians who go to war with each other, Christians who vote against each other. No wonder we have a branding problem. See, because you can be a Christian and define it any way that fits your lifestyle. But you know, that wasn't how it was in the beginning. You know, if we look at Scripture and we really seek to understand the words of Jesus Christ, we find that he didn't use the word Christian to describe his followers. Jesus used a different term, and the term that he did use is actually defined. And that term is disciple. And if we truly seek to live our life as a disciple of Christ, not just merely as a Christian, then there's no doubt about how you're going to live your life. There's no doubt about what you're going to believe, how you're going to act, how you're going to behave, how you're going to treat other people. That's what it all comes down to. You see, when Jesus gathered together all of his apostles and his closest followers at the very end of his ministry, he had just been two and a half, three, three and a half years with his apostles, and he was teaching sermons in the land. He was performing miracles and preaching parables and doing all these wondrous things for the people. And at the very end of it, he calls together all of his apostles to come up to this upper room to share one last Passover meal together. And as they're in this room, he says, okay, guys, sit down. And I want to share something with you because I'm not going to have another opportunity like this. We're never going to be in this circumstance or in this situation again. So I need to boil down my entire ministry of three years into what I'm about to tell you right now. And everything, if you have not paid attention to anything that I've said so far, this is what I want you to get a hold of. And Jesus goes on to say this. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. Not by what you believe in, not by how frequently you attend church services. He says, no, I want people to define you, and I want people to identify you based on how you treat other people, based on how you love other people. You know, this isn't the only time we see Jesus doing this. One day, Jesus was teaching, and some men approach him with a trick question. And people were always trying to trick, or to trick Jesus during this time. And Jesus wouldn't even answer some of their questions because he knew what was really at heart of these people. 
But these men, they come up to Jesus and they say, teacher, tell us, what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest law that exists? Now, they already knew the answer because they had heard it from the teachers of the law and the the elders of the law. And they were confident that they knew what the true answer was. And they were trying to trick Jesus, saying, if you know everything, if who you claim is who you are is the real person, then tell us, of all the laws, what is the greatest? What is the most important? And keep in mind that there were 613 laws during this time. But that didn't stop Jesus. You see, Jesus immediately responds back and he says, I'll tell you my answer because my answer is this. Love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is this. And I'm sure at this point they said, well, wait a second, Jesus. We only asked you to give us one. We said, what is the greatest law, the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds and says, well, I can't just give you one. I've got to give you two. Because the second is just like the first. In fact, the second is just as important as the first one is. You know what it is? He says, I'll tell you what it is. It's love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. When it comes down to it, that's our main focus. That's what we truly seek to look at in all of this. And before they could raise their hand to ask another question, Jesus goes on to say something of extreme brilliance. He goes on to say something so profound that I don't know how we have missed it. In fact, 25 years later, the Apostle Paul is going to come back and spend a great deal of time and effort and detail writing about what Jesus is about to say. And another 30 to 40 years later, the Apostle John is going to be writing about the same exact thing that Jesus is about to say. You know what he says? He continues by saying this, all the laws and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. All the laws, all 613s of the thou shall do this, thou shall not do that, thou shall not kill, kill, thou shall not kill, thou shall not murder, thou shall not covet, thou shall not commit adultery, thou shall never eat Kentucky fried chicken, right? Thou shall honor thy mother and father, thou shall honor the Sabbath. All of these rules and laws, all of the prophets, all of the instructions, the teachings, the guidelines, every single one of these things hangs on these two commandments. You know what that means, folks? That means that every time we go to the Word of God, every time we go to teach a lesson, every time we go into Scripture to find out what it says about this, or what it says about them, or what it says about my husband, or my wife, or about raising children, or about money, or about authority, or about drugs, or alcohol, or addictions, or any of that stuff, Whenever we go into scripture to find some law or commandment or guideline or principle, Jesus says we need to use the filter of love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. See, that's what it comes down to. And this brings us to the main question. And this is the question that Pastor Larry asked us last Sunday, and it's so important we understand this. And the question is, what does love require of me? You see, if the big idea is that people are going to know that we are followers of Jesus Christ by how we love one another, then in every single day, in every single encounter with our husbands, our wives, our children, our coworkers, our bosses, the people that we report to, that we ask this question, what does love require of me right here and right now? 
And you know what, folks? This is a game changer. And it's a game changer because we tend to get so focused at looking at the commands that we forget the intent of the commander. And what I mean by this is so many of us, we become so focused upon what the actual word of God about what scripture, we spend so much time dwelling on the physical words that we don't even pay attention to why Jesus said it in the first place. Why he felt it was important enough to bring it up in this situation, in this moment. You see, our inclination is to immediately go into scripture and says, no, 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 see right here it says do this. No, no, right here it says that you should live this way. This is how you're going to get fixed. This is how you're going to fix your problems. But Jesus says, no, before you even get there, you need to ask yourself the question, what does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself? You see, that is primary. That is what it really comes down to. And some of you may not be ready to jump into this way of thinking just yet. But if you are a Christian and if you are a Christ follower, then you owe it to yourself in every situation and in every conflict, in every circumstance of your life that you ask yourself, if I'm truly going to step into the realm that Jesus has invited me into, then I need to ask myself, what does love require of me? What does that truly look like? And so I want to spend the rest of this morning just trying to talk about the brilliance behind what Jesus had to say. How brilliant it was of Jesus who didn't really have a whole ton of followers, who didn't really have any influence, had no leverage, who was stuck in the armpit of the Roman world where no one was really paying attention to him. How he could have said anything that he wanted to say, and yet this was the message that God had given him to preach. And this is the message that would start the movement of the church. And how brilliant it was that he could have said anything that he wanted to say. But the significance of it is actually found in our own personal experiences. And what I mean by that is this. You see, in your life, all of us there know that there are two categories of people that influence us directly and profoundly. And they have made us into the person that we are today. And the interesting thing is that these two categories of people have nothing to do with religion have nothing to do with church, have nothing to do with how much scripture they know, how theologically set they are, none of that. The two categories of people that directly influence your lives are these. First, those who have hurt you deeply. Think about that. All of us can agree with this, that there are people who have influenced us because they have hurt us deeply. And secondly, those who have loved you profoundly. We all know these stories. And when you find yourself in a moment of counseling because you've gone through life and you've hit a roadblock or a stumbling block or something that you just can't get past, a good counselor will bring you right to this point. But you know what's confusing? You know what's interesting about this? Is that many of us, many of us in our culture, in our society, in our world, we have been hurt deeply by people who have accurate theology people who are regular church attenders, people who know the word of God, people who somehow find a way to know every single passage and every single scripture as it pertains to the sins that I'm currently committing or I ever will commit, right? We all know these people in our lives. But we have been hurt by people who on the outside look like outstanding citizens, the perfect example of what a Christian should look like. But on the inside, they find a way to tear us apart to break us down, 
to lead us into an experience of adulthood, a journey that's only filled with pain and suffering and hurt. And folks, we know this is true because we see pastors and we see priests who have accurate theology who are currently in prison because they've taken advantage or they've hurt children. And it's not necessarily what they've done. You see, the kids have moved up and they've grown into maturity and they haven't been impacted necessarily by what they believed, but rather by how they were treated. You know, on the flip side, some of you maybe moved into adulthood with this extraordinary self-esteem, with an extraordinary outlook on life, with success because someone chose to love you profoundly. Somebody who came alongside of you, who didn't have the most accurate theology, who didn't know all the stories, who wasn't a regular church attender, but somebody who set you up for success because they gave you something that goes far beyond theology and far beyond belief. They gave you love. And it may have been a teacher, a parent, a coach, a principal, a pastor, a small group leader, somebody who came alongside of you in your youth and poured into you and showed you what it was like to experience unconditional love for the very first time in your life. You see, we all have stories of hurt and pain and suffering, and we all have stories of being loved profoundly. But regardless of what story comes to your mind in this moment, it always involves an individual who shared an experience or who has done something that has spoken directly to your soul. And that's why the way that you've been treated has more to do with who you are than with what you believe. And let me clarify what I mean by this. See, this is what Jesus was trying to get at. And this is why it's so important that those of us who are going to call ourselves Christ followers, that we get this right. Folks, see, because this is our best play. This is our greatest leverage. This is our greatest opportunity. And somewhere along the way, and it's no big mystery of when it happened or where it happened, but there was a shift from behave to believe. You see, when the church first started and when Jesus was launching this movement, all they had was to love one another. That's it. But somewhere down the road, they lost sight of that and they gave that up and said, well, it's not about how we treat one another. It's about how much we know to be true. And the focus shifted to knowing more about this than rather exemplifying and showing what it is like to be a lover of Christ. But it wasn't always this way. It wasn't always like this. And if we would do what Jesus did instead of arguing and bickering about what he said, then this world would change. Our reputation as Christians would change. Our influence as a church and a society would change. You see, to believe it's easy, it requires almost nothing. But to behave, it requires a change in worldview. And that's why when Jesus came, he didn't say, a new commandment I give you to believe correctly. By this, all of the people will know that you are my followers if you believe correctly. No, he didn't say that. And you know how much time and energy and money and publicity is spent upon people who call themselves Christians, who just argue and bicker about what Jesus really meant by what he said? How much time and energy is directed and focused into that? You see, in the beginning, it wasn't that way at all. It wasn't anything like this. It was simple. It was all about what does it truly mean to love one another? That's the principle which we should be living our lives in. 
And over and over and over in Scripture, we see Jesus using this principle because Jesus understood the heart of men. You see, Jesus encountered and he experienced and interacted with people based on their story. And we all know what this is like because we all have people in our lives that have just rubbed us the wrong way, that have irritated us, that something just seems off about them. But then you get an opportunity to sit with them for just a moment and you hear their story and you hear how they explain the reason why they do certain things or the reason why they're the way that they are today. And your heart changes. See, this is the exact same thing that Jesus did. Jesus encountered everyone and he interacted with everyone based on their story. You know why Jesus was so lenient with one group of people and so forceful with another? Like to one rich man, he says, go off and sell all of your possessions in order to get your life right. Or to another rich man, he says, oh, you're close. Just keep going on the road that you're going, but just be careful. Why the different stories? Because it's two different people with two different stories and two different hearts. See, Jesus always interacts with people based on their story. And when we are listening to stories of people, we need to ask the question, in light of who I am, and in light of who they are, and in light of what I've experienced, and in light of what they're going through right now, what does love require of me? What would it truly look like to love my neighbor as myself? Can you imagine what would happen in our families, in our world, in our society, in our culture, even in this church, if those of us who call ourselves Christians, we put down our weapons, we put down our objections, we put down our theological differences, and we say, you know what, God? I'm going to commit to living a life of love. I'm going to commit to listening to people's stories first and figuring out in that situation how I can love them. That's why when Jesus came, he said, by this, everyone will know that you were my disciples by how you love one another. It's so profound and it's so important. And so bringing this all home, I want to take us out of the, the theoretical side of this, the theoretical realm. And I want to bring us into the practical realm. And what I mean is this, is that so many of us were so focused on what we believe that we forget that Jesus has called us to find a way to heal people's hurts and to love them towards Jesus Christ. So how do we do that? What does love really require of me? And I want to give you three statements or three action points, if you will, that are going to help guide us through this. And the first is this, don't do anything that will hurt you. You see, love requires that you don't do anything that's going to hurt you. Don't make any moral decision, any ethical decision, any relational decision, any sexual decision, any professional decision that's going to hurt you. Because when you hurt you, you hurt the ones that love you the most. See, it's not just your life. It's not just your world. It's not just your job, just your reputation, just your family. Your heavenly father loves you deeply and you respond to his love by doing nothing that's going to hurt you. Second thing that love requires is that you don't do anything that's going to hurt someone else. Love requires you don't do anything that hurts anybody else. You know why? Because every person that you ever come face to face with, eyeball to eyeball with, is somebody your heavenly father sent his son to die for. And regardless of how you feel about the world, regardless of how you view the world or your Christianity or your maturity or religion or any of these things, 
We need to commit to never doing anything that's going to cause someone pain, that's going to hurt them, that's going to mislead them, that's going to betray them, that's going to deceive them, that's going to abuse them. That's what love requires. And the third and final action step is this. Don't be mastered by anything. Love requires that you're not mastered by anything. And you know why? Because when you're mastered by something, you can't love someone. No one should ever have to compete with your drug addiction, with your alcohol addiction, with your porn addiction, with your anger, with your frustration, with your rage. Love requires that you get rid of anything that takes away the lordship of God in your life. That's what love requires. So don't do anything that's going to hurt you. Don't do anything that's going to hurt someone else. And don't be mastered by anything. Sounds easy, right? Sounds good in theory to be able to do this. But you know what some of you may have just done? As I've been going through this list of things, some of you have automatically thought about other people. You said, oh, I am so thankful my husband is here to listen to this sermon today. Or I am so grateful that I was here so I can text my son or daughter in college so they can log online and listen to this maybe four, five, six times. Whatever it may be. But you know what? That's the very same principle that has caused you to be hurt by somebody who called themselves a Christian. And what if, just what if we decided today that we're going to let God take care of them and that we're going to do whatever it takes to get our own lives right, to get our own lives back to a healthy place with Jesus Christ. Where we say, I'm going to go to counseling. I'm going to get help. I'm going to confess. I'm going to abandon these things that control me. And where I've hurt people and I know that I have, I'm going to confess. And where I've hurt people that I don't even know that I've made them suffer, I'm still going to confess. And it's going to be painful. It's going to be hurtful. But it's a hurt that's going to lead to healing. And so I think it all boils down to this. And I think this is truly what Jesus Christ was getting at. And this is what we've lost sight of. You see, when we as the church, when we as Christians to decide to leverage anything other than love, we lose our leverage in this world. Say that again. When we decide to leverage anything other than love, we lose our leverage in this world. And it's not because we're at war with a group of people. It's not because of politics, not because of Democrats or Republicans or religions or denominations. No, it's about none of that. You see, many years ago, when the church started, it had power. It had influence. It had money. It had the ability to work with politics. It had the ability to influence legislation. But even they decided to abandon love, and they started to leverage something else. But it wasn't always like that. You see, a long, long time ago, with Jesus' earliest followers, all they had was Jesus' words of love one another. They didn't have the writings of Paul they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. No, all they had was to love one another. No literature, no media, no TV, no radio, none of this. They simply had to ask themselves the question over and over again, what does love require of me? And what would it look like in my life if I were to never forget the intent of the commander when I'm looking at the commands? How much would my life change? How much would my social circle change, folks? You see, that is how a culture was influenced. That's how paganism that we can't even imagine was turned upside down. 
how an entire belief system, even though it may seem mythical and out of this world to us, how it was radically changed. And it's because the people didn't leverage what they had, money, power, fame, riches, ethics, none of that. No, they leveraged what they did have, and it was love. And no one had to coerce them because no one can coerce you into this kind of thing. You see, they were drawn to the edge where they could come and see. Nobody's going to push you in and nobody's going to pull you away, but we need to come and see how they love. Come and see what it feels like to express this. And we know that the people felt guilty and the earliest pagans in this time, they felt condemned by this because they saw marriages that were radically different. They saw relationships that were radically different. They saw jobs and work ethics and professions that were radically different, all because it was a relationship of generosity, of love. And when the first century pagans, they saw this, they knew that this group of Christ followers, they had something that they didn't, and they felt guilty. But you know what? When we look at the Bible, when we look at what's happening in the world around us, we don't feel guilty. We don't feel condemned by it. We feel none of this. And if they felt guilty, we should be feeling guilty and moved to get our life back to that track. And if this kind of love ever characterizes my life, if this kind of love ever characterizes your life or the life of the church or the life of the church in America, there's gonna be a radical difference in leverage like we have never seen before. That's gonna be mind-blowing and it's gonna be awesome. You see, you can't preach people into loving God. You can't preach people out of addictions. You can't preach people out of breaking bad habits. It's only done when it's seen and it becomes so irresistible that they can't help but get on board. So maybe we're gonna be the generation that decides once and for all that we're gonna ask the question every single circumstance, every single situation of our life, what does love require of me? And maybe, just maybe, we're gonna be the generation that it'll be said of us as it was the early Christ followers that, look, we know that you are disciples of Christ by how you love one another. And maybe, just maybe, we'll be the generation that starts the official rebranding of this word Christianity, this word Christian, into something that even Jesus himself would be proud of. I know I want that. I know I want to live my life as a disciple where I show love to everyone around me. And the question is, do you? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we bring you all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor this morning. God, we know that we would be nowhere without you. God, we know that we encounter circumstances, we encounter situations, we encounter people every single day of our lives, God, where our first inclination is to jump down their throats or to throw scripture or do something at them. But God, I pray that you convict our hearts. God, that you truly rise us up to be lovers of you, to be lovers of this world, and to be the influence. You see, God, all of us have the opportunity to influence people, either by hurting them deeply or by loving them profoundly. And God, we pray that you just convict our hearts to where we choose love. Because God, what if we showed love to this world the way that you show love to us every single day. How radically different would our lives be? God, challenge us and convict our hearts to do that as soon as we walk out this door. We pray this in your heavenly name. Amen.